Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the NY Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have Brigadier General and Doctor Rob Spaulding, who is a former B-2 pilot. You were the defense attache, correct, in Beijing? Yep. Served in the Trump White House as a, on the National Security Council, and... Uh, China expert. You speak Chinese. You speak Mandarin. Uh, you know, for those of you that don't know Rob, so Rob and I are friends, and I've known him for quite a while. And he, I always found him to be one of the most impressive Air Force officers that I had ever met. Incredibly smart, incredibly capable. Now he's retired, and he's the CEO of a company called Simper that is making. EMP hardened infrastructure, you know, 5G equipment, uh, data center equipment. What all else does Semper do? It basically gives you the ability to use your phone, continue to use your phone through a new EMP, which, you know, given the we had a just Chinese balloon float over <laughs> at 60,000 feet, gives you some indication of the threat that we face. It does. And our adversaries, and that's what we're going to talk about today, because you and I have worked a lot about Chinese issues in the past, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk China again. And you've got a you've written two books about the Chinese threat. Some people, your critics, and we all have critics. I know I have quite a few. Have you know often say you know that we're too much. Both you and I were accused of being you know, too much of panda sluggers and not enough of panda huggers. But I think we have been borne out over time as being correct. And your latest book, which I, I enjoyed it on, you know, I listen to a lot of audio books while I'm at the gym. And so you were on my gym list for a few weeks. And, and I thought your analysis of unrestricted warfare was, was spot on and fantastic. So for those listeners who haven't read uh, either of Rob's books, pick them up on Amazon or Kindle or, you know, I audio book them. So those were great. Uh, so thanks for doing that. I think it was informative to folks who don't really understand sort of the intricacies and the allegorical nature of Chinese strategic thinking and sort of the hindsight bias and this, you know, whenever I tell people that the Chinese constantly look back like she reads, you know, uh, the annals of the autumn and spring periods that they they're like, huh, why would he do that? That's because it's not our way. So could you maybe start out by giving us a better understanding of how and what guides Chinese strategic thinking and, and their strategic ambition? 
Yeah, there's actually a good, and I, I, I talk about it in Stealth War, um, a good um, little, what I would call almost a monograph, it wasn't really a book, um, called Tre- uh, A Treatise on Efficacy. And, um, and the guy uh, that wrote it, French, French guy, um, really just analyzes the Western strategic mind and the Chinese uh, strategic mind, and he compares and contrasts them. And there's a there's an interesting quote um, in there where he talks about, you know, the difference of strategy um, from the West and the East. And, you know, so the way to think about that is we tend to shape the world around us. So we have an objective and we muster our resources and we drive towards that objective. Um, And then the Chinese sort of think about where is the world going and how do I. How do I make myself comport to the trends that are um, that are being established, uh, and then how you know how do I take advantage of kind of be carried away by them? And so, I think the that really um, that the way that that's been applied in the modern context is globalization, the internet. So you know, and I think unrestricted warfare does a good job of explaining the opportunities of globalization and the internet and how the Chinese Communist Party, from a doctrinal perspective, um, at least in terms of thinking militarily, um, a military competition that goes beyond military, uh, how do they, how do they you know, essentially conform to the trends of the time and allow themselves to take advantage of those things by being carried away um, by them? And so... Um, that's one way of looking at it. Another way to look at it um, that I use frequently is um, Simon Sinek's you know, idea of uh, infinite versus finite games. I think the Chinese Communist Party thinks more in, in an infinite game, which um, Simon Sinek says uh, an, a player in an infinite game seeks to continue to be in a player. Uh, in a finite game, there's winners and losers. There's a, there's a specific time period for the game. In an infant game, there's no time period and there's no winners and losers. And so I think that's the other um, that's the other uh, important difference between the two. And then, um, you know, they do study uh, Mao studied. She studies. They all, all all the Chinese leaders study ancient Chinese history. And I think one of the reasons that the Communist Party does this is because it is primarily a political um, when, when they think of uh, competition or conflict, it's, it's thought of in a political sense. So you know, where Clausewitz says war is politics by other means, you know, to them, politics is war. It, it is, is, and so political warfare is a main way of thinking. And if you think about political warfare, just kind of as a, as a way it's practiced, um, it is, you know, the same things uh, are recurring throughout human history. It is, politics is a human endeavor. And so studying um, uh, ancient, ancient China Really, um, you know, in terms of human interactions, this isn't really that different from today. Politics is politics throughout the ages. And I think, um, you know, one of the things I talk about is if you're going to look at a book that kind of from the from the Western perspective, that kind of mirrors uh, how the Chinese Communist Party looks at the wor- uh, world, it's um, it's uh, Machiavelli's The Prince. I think that's the if, if, if you use that book as a, as a way to think about. Um, how the Chinese Communist Party think of, thinks about the world, and I think you would be much better served. Now, as we think about Chinese strategy, and and there there's a lot of misunderstanding, and and the example I always like to give is at the end of the Cold War, the KGB went back to Russia, and in Berlin they left all their files. 
So German scholars quickly came in and looked at them. They, they saw the Russian war, the Soviet war plan, and that included attacks, nuclear attacks on the five largest German cities is sort of a, a effort at a fiat accompli, a escalate to deescalate. And they, and the, the challenge for the U.S. and the U.S. had more than 4,000 professional Sovietologists is we got it completely wrong in that we thought they were going to engage in this massive conventional assault through the fold the gap. And that, that was our view of their strategy. And we were wrong. They were going to go nuclear first. And if we can get the Russians wrong when we have that much, that many devoted Sovietologists who speak the language and understand culture and all that, then my question is how much more wrong are we about the Chinese who are so much more fundamentally different? And so you having a great deal of experience with the Chinese, you understand them better than most. So what are some of the ways that you think that we get the Chinese wrong, particularly in things, for example, like in how we understand their no first use policy? What does active defense mean? What are their ambitions? Yeah, I think the first thing that you have to recognize, and I, and I say this, you know, and it's kind of in the title of my book, War Without Rules, is um, the understanding. And the Chinese Communist Party are extremely clear about this point, and that is the rules established by the West uh, don't really apply to us. They're 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 in essence they're designed to prop up the West. And so if we play a game according to their rules, we're going to lose. And so. Anything that we think about with regard to strategic deterrence, um, I mean, there's a lot of uh, knowledge built up there. That, you know, of course, that was based on um, the U.S.-Soviet, um, U.S. and allied uh, versus Soviet Cold War. I think we have to throw that completely out the door because um, the, 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 the surest thing that will, you will get wrong with the Chinese will be if you try to model um, our nuclear posture vis-a-vis -vis, um, the Chinese with the same kind of um, way that we looked at the Soviets. We have to basically throw all that away. We don't know um, uh, what the Chinese are going to do. What we do know is that they've said the rules don't apply to them. And so um, one of the things that that's uh, played out over the years is this constant effort on the part of America to get um, the Chinese to enter into some kind of strategic dialogue, because that's what we know with the Soviets. They're not going to enter. And even if they did enter into uh, um, strategic dialogue with the United States, whatever agreement came out of that, they don't feel bound to. And, and I think it's it, it's it's you have to work with the Chinese um, not just the government, but just the, the, the you know, Chinese nationals to understand that contracts don't mean what they do. So rule of law, which you know, guides how we um, how we deal with things. So you have a contract with somebody, you expect them to honor the contract. A contract uh, with uh, with a Chinese national is is meaningless. It really has no meaning. Um, and particularly the Chinese state is not going to enforce a contract. Um, in the way that you would expect, uh, say, a court in the West to. So everything that you think about when you, um, you know, the West has kind of built these, these institutions and these rules of the road, you have to throw them completely out. And um, what, you know, the, what, the way I look at it, the way 
um, the way China is trying to reshape the world. Today, we talk about a rule-based world, right? That's the Western liberal Democrat order. Uh, we want to engage China to bind them to the rule-based world. They, you cannot, um, when, you, when you deal with the Chinese Communist Party, it is, it is on the basis of interests. And you have to think of everything that you do with China uh, and the Chinese Communist Party on the basis of interest. So you have to think of an interest-based world. That's a completely fundamentally different way of dealing. It's much more akin to kind of balance of power. And, and, and so if you start to think in those terms, you're much better equipped. Now, what the problem that we have right now is that we have all these allies and partners and we've created this rule-based world. And then we invited the Chinese into that. And so because they don't abide by that, they're fouling it up. They're destroying it. So things like um, that we're getting into with China right now regarding trade, you know, we end up having fights with the Europeans because we're trying to deal with everybody on, um, on the basis of, hey, the Chinese don't play by the rules, so we have to be, play different. We have to have tariffs, um, you know, across the board. And I think um, what we did with the Soviets is much more, um, I think, uh, would be much more effective. And that is just say, Soviets, you go over there, you have, you know, you have your economy, you have your political uh, system, you have everything. And then we're going to separate. We're going to completely separate. And then we are going to um, ensure that we maintain the rules based order and ensure that, you know, we're prosperous and free. And then over time, by not having access to that, I think, you know, they will decline. But, you know. Throw out everything that you think about um, with regard to geopolitics when you think of the Chinese because they don't um, they don't understand abide by or, or, or will ever um, you know insert themselves into a rule based world in a way that you can understand. Now, as you think through how they think about nuclear weapons, because that's part of you know what Semper does is it's. You know, you've built a company that seeks to address a potential threat, an EMP threat from Russia or China. So how should the listeners of this show understand what the Chinese in particular think about the use of nuclear weapons and their role in national security and strategy? Well, I think they, um, they um, first of all, uh, they have some asymmetric capabilities. You know, one of the things that, that, that we talk about is EMP. Um, and so that, because they don't play by the rules, uh, so if you go back to kind of how we establish our posture vis-a-vis -vis the Soviets, it was much more based on kind of um, an inf offensive capability. We recognize that, um, you know, based on everything that they uh, were building, that we wanted to create an offensive capability to deter them from using weapons. I think when you look at the Chinese, you actually have to take a more of a defensive posture. In other words, um, they could potentially use these things in very asymmetric ways. You have to prepare yourselves and you have to be ready to absorb that and not let it become the disruptor. So kind of like the, what you were alluding to with the Soviets, where um, that we had discovered that they were going to use uh, nuclear weapons very asymmetrically. I would, I would um, plan for the Chinese to do so um, as well. They're going to use that as something to create an advantage that they can then exploit. So um, thinking of, um, you know, nuclear weapons as kind of the mutually assured destruction, um, uh, you know, 
uh, mindset with China just isn't going to work. I think you have to take a much more defensive posture, understand, you know, how these things could be used and more of a psychological, again, political warfare, psychological warfare. Um, COVID was a psychological weapon, not to say that the Chinese deliberately released COVID to be a psychological weapon. It's just they used the opportunity to create and, and, and to spread fear. So if you think of what nuclear weapons represent, they res- represent fear. They are a psychological weapon. This is a thing that, that, um, that uh, you know, all the, all the basis of nuclear strategy is based on this idea of a nuclear weapon is a psychological weapon. And so the Chinese Communist Party will seek to use that as a psychological weapon. Yeah, I often like to describe the Chinese as a lot like water, where they will flow wherever the opportunity presents itself and where we, the Americans, will look at a mountain and say, well, what are we going to do? Well, the mountain's in our way, so we're either going to take the mountain down. We'll just cut a hole through (laughs) it. Cut a hole through it, whereas the Chinese will say... Well, what if we went around the mountain? That would be the easiest thing to do, and we can still get, you know, where we want to go. So it's a very different way of thinking about it. Now, you are working on EMP, and the big issue for you for EMP is that much of our, you know, our electrical grid, our infrastructure is not EMP-hardened, and given our dependencies on, you know, P in position navigation and timing with GPS system, with our digital infrastructure, we face significant threats that would be catastrophic if we, you know, we could have a a high altitude EMP detonation that could wreak havoc on our infrastructure without killing anybody, you know, in a nuclear detonation and releasing you know, tons of ionizing radiation and contaminating stuff, but we could do equal damage with that EMP. So can you perhaps lay out the threat as you see it and what you think are some of the solutions to that? Yeah. So, you know, having, um, having grown up in the, in in the nuclear force, um, you know, we, uh, when I say we, I mean the nuclear force, uh, has the ability to continue to operate through a nuclear attack to include EMP. That's the, the way we, because we have to. Um, you know, one of the one of the things that I have seen uh, as a challenge ever since, and it's really the thing that got me thinking about this was Hurricane Katrina. And if you if you look at what happened to Hurricane Katrina, you had you know widespread loss of the of power. You had widespread loss of communications. And when that happened, you lost civil society pretty quickly. And so, um, and then there's, a, you know, of course, there's a, a great fiction out there called One Second After. So think about Katrina across the United States. And then how do we maintain order? So, yes, our nuclear forces maintain uh, on, on alert and they're postured and they can respond. But you, the, the country is descending into, you know, basically chaos. Um, because that's what's going to happen if if we lose the grid and if we lose our communication system. And I think what's more what's more important of the two between the grid and the communication system is the communication system. I think we could lose the grid, um, but if we can but if we can communicate with the populace and maintain calm and let them know that you know help's on the way and that we're doing what we need to do, that's far more uh, able to keep things going. Than, um, than if we just lose the grid um, 
you know, if, if we lost, if we lost the grid and communications, I think um, that's when you really get the the descent of um, of civil liberties into disorder. And I think that's the biggest threat. And uh, consequently, that means that a nuclear power doesn't need to be, you know, have fifteen hundred nuclear weapons or three thousand nuclear weapons. They need just need a couple, a couple with a ICBM capability to, you know, launch them over the top of the United States and and essentially take down the grid. And now we've got um, we've got huge problems that the nuclear forces aren't designed to solve. Um, even Northcom is not designed to solve it. When you look at Northcom, their Northcom's forces. When it comes to communications and power, are private companies, and as you know, private companies aren't um, required to uh, be prepared for any kind of attack. And we see whether it be hurricanes or the bombing in Nashville of the AT and T switching center that took down Tennessee's um, cell network for two weeks. We're just not robust and resilient and survivable for that. And so, uh, you know, when I say defensive. I think that's one of the things that, um, that that America needs to look at. And there's been congressional study after congressional study saying this is a problem. We need to do something about it. And of course, um, just like you know, most things, we just we just uh, neglect it. So we're at that point in our show where we have to take a quick break, and we are talking with Rob Spaulding, CEO of Semper, retired B two pilot, and we will be right back. This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the Anwa Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Okay, and we're back, and we're talking with Rob Spaulding. So you're talking about EMP and the challenges that we have that we're we're not hardened and we don't have a resilient infrastructure. Now, I can imagine that this is one of those topics that would have a big bill. You know, it's kind of like infrastructure. If we want to get the bridges and roads fixed, that's a big bill. So if we want to make our infrastructure resilient – I would assume that whatever that cost is going to be is some astronomical number. Do you have a sense of, of what it would take to prepare for an EMP attack? So what we, um, what we did is uh, take, um, so one of the things that um, I, the paper that I wrote at, when I was at the White House on 5G, the, the concept there was that 5G was bringing most of the infrastructure into software and that gave us an opportunity to begin to think differently about architecture. So what what Semper did was take 5G as a as a technology, and then envision how if we had a clean sheet of paper, we might redo the architecture of how we build infrastructure. And when you do it that way, actually, um, we, Semper's on a, a path right now where we're as cost effective as as current infrastructure. We are we are on a path to drive that cost down 
below what current effort infrastructure costs to deploy. And so I think, um, you know, this, the concept that it's going to cost you, it's going to be enormously exorbitantly expensive. Not only is it going to be uh, not going to be more expensive, it's actually going to be cheaper than the way we build uh, infrastructure today. And it's more resilient. So I think, um, I think the, 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 the way we have done EMP hardening in the past and the way DOD currently does uh, EMP hardening, I live this in the B2, is that we, um, we, we try to harden things after they're designed uh, rather than building uh, EMP hardening into the overall design in, of the architecture. And I think when you do that, what we found was that building it in from the beginning really makes it the, the additional cost is is negligible, and then using the ability that 5G gives you, which is to share infrastructure amongst multiple different tenants, so the military can share with commercial, much like the um, we share the freeways now uh, with Eisenhower National Highway System. You know, we don't send military vehicles down some military road; they go down the freeway, just like all the other. Uh, you know, civilian traffic does. I think when you start to look at infrastructure in more of a shelled, shared format, which is what 5G allows you to do, now you can build infrastructure that's not even more now now more capable, more resilient, and more cost effective, both for the military and for um, uh, the civilian sector. So, um, you know, that's that's what I that's what 5G brought to you know as a technology brought uh, created an opportunity to kind of rethink and i think that's the the opportunity that i tried to talk about at the white house that um really telecom industry wasn't really uh, interested in hearing about but i think from a business perspective it gave me an opportunity to, to retire and go out and, and and seek to actually establish that you could do this uh and, and that's what we've done we're we've already built the infrastructure and we're beginning to deploy it now um, so, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it, when you, if you think about it from, um, you know, what we always say about our competition with China, it's American innovation that's going to allow us to compete. Well, in this case, um, American innovation is allowing us to compete by thinking differently about how, how we build infrastructure. Yeah, that's a, it's sort of an interesting topic because it reminds me of, in many respects, you know, for Africa, they're not going to go and build, you know, like a legacy phone system so that they can then build, uh, you know, a cell network. They're just going to skip all the legacy stuff and go straight right. to the latest technology. Right. That's sort of the, the benefit of not being the first mover. And so it seems that when you when you are always the first mover and you're the one developing the infrastructure and then building it out, you then have a lot of financial interest in that legacy infrastructure right. that keeps yeah. you from, you know, being willing to just sort of dump it and move on to whatever the next generation is. And I, as I, as I listen to you, right. I sort of think that's what you're saying. Yeah. And I, and I think so the, the way we're looking at it is um, at least initially, you know, we're not, it's not, it's, we don't believe that we should replace all of our infrastructure with with semper nodes, but we do believe that if there's areas uh, of the country um, or communities or you know continuity of government, continuity of operations for military bases that you want to ensure uh, is survivable and continues to operate um, through any type of attack, then that would be an appropriate place to uh, put this. And then over time, you know, by thinking of infrastructure in this way, we will slowly get more resilient. One of the things um, about our cell networks today 
is that we have um, highly centralized uh, architecture. In other words, if you lose connection to the brains of the network, you can have tens of thousands of cell towers that just don't operate because they don't have connection to the core. And so what we've tried to do is say, okay, every node has to have a core, has to have brains. So if you lose, if that is operating as part of more of a centralized network, say that that centralized uh, connection is cut, well, the, the, the nodes themselves continue to operate as kind of isolated nodes in the event something happens. And that's how you're able to build resiliency without actually having to replace everything. And this is really pretty interesting and sort of important for nuclear command and control because, uh, you know, my belief is that our adversaries are going to launch before they launch nuclear weapons, they're going to probably launch cyber attacks. They're going to launch space attacks to try to blind us and deafen us. And so maintaining capable nuclear command and control, you know, sort of the be all end all of our ability to operate our, our, you know, nuclear infrastructure and the nuclear weapons. So do do you see the, this being something that can be done in the face of, you know, advanced cyber attacks? You know, you mentioned Semper nodes that they're going to be EMP resilient, but how do you see our infrastructure, both, you know, sort of what y'all are doing and then where we are in its resiliency to the sort of initial cyber attacks and and other efforts to make us deaf and blind. Right. So I think one of the because we're highly centralized, then um, anywhere from the brain all the way out to the radio to the antenna, uh, you have opportunities to insert yourself to collect information. And so. Um, by driving all of the infrastructure in the software, what 5G allowed you to do was kind of combine that into a single node and then harden that node. So now um, all of these places that you can go along in, in the United States to kind of, you know, siphon out data, they are now collapsed into a single node. And then once you treat that node uh, like a tamper-proof encrypted node, you know, getting into it is very hard. And so and then when you communicate from node to node, if that's encrypted, it becomes very, very hard to, to break into it. So think of, think of each Semper node as a skiff. And, and each skiff doesn't have any people in it that you know, want to watch cable TV, so they drill a hole in the side. In fact, we monitor the in, in, inside to make sure that, that the case isn't penetrated. Now it becomes very difficult um, anywhere to, to insert yourself. And then if you want to, say, air gap, certain communications and ensure that, you know, the way that you talk node to node is say through a secure satellite communication now, or maybe even HF. Now you have the ability to create a highly secure, hardened infrastructure that runs right alongside your, your cell towers. You could not do that uh, with a centralized architecture because, you know, any time that you're moving data to, uh, you know, the brain so they can route it wherever it needs to go, you're creating vulnerabilities in terms of um, the ability to take data out. And then um, from SCADA systems, whether it be water or power, you know, having the ability to prevent, um, you know, that, have that SCADA system from having access to the Internet. You can do that, too, by saying, hey, it's going to have access to, this, to the Semper node, all the compute that's needed to run the applications that drive that SCADA network is going to be there. And we're not going to give that access to the internet. So these are the things that you can begin to do when you build your architecture in this way. 
unfortunately we're out of time. And so we're at the end of the show. And before we go, I wanted to just give you that final word, you know, as we, we talked about Chinese strategy and nuclear weapons, and then we talked about EMP attack. And now we're talking about how do you sort of build capability to defend against it is, as our listeners try to process, you know, sort of the breadth of the show today, what do you think is the important takeaway for them to walk away from listening to this show with? What what should they know? Well, first of all, nuclear weapons are highly relevant when it comes to our competition with China. We, but we have to begin to think differently. I think um, I think we need to think more in terms of defensively, and we have to think more in terms of psychologically. These weapons can be used as psychological weapons, and the Chinese Communist Party will seek to do that. And so understanding that the Chinese think very differently about warfare and how that um, impacts our nuclear posture, both in, from an offense perspective, but also from a defensive perspective, I think is a very important. All right. Well, I will give you the last word. I want to thank Brigadier General Retired Rob Spalding, the CEO of Simper. If you want to learn more about him or his company, you can go to their website, which is, of course, on the Internet. So uh, go there. Thanks, Rob, for joining us. Uh, we'll, we, I think we'll have you back in the future. Thanks, Adam. This, this is a great topic, and I think many people are sitting there wanting more. But unfortunately, time is against us. So thanks for joining us, and thanks to you, the listeners. And we'll see you on the next episode. This has been a production of the Anwar Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Thunfall. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NucleCast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.